Good evening, everybody. I'm Mark Cortier, the Executive Director of the Huntington Arts Council, and welcome. Thank you for joining us for tonight's Conversations in the Arts. Tonight's was a call to the community. The topic will be anti-racism and inequality. Uh, first, special thanks to the New York State Council on the Arts, who just this month came through with our contracts. We are breathing a sigh of relief. <laughs> you know. Also, special thanks to the town of Huntington for their support on this. And the concept of conversations in the arts came about, um, it was twofold, to, to bring artists together so we can just talk to one another because we rarely have the opportunity to do this. And, you know, back in the pre-COVID days, we used to do these in the gallery and it was a way of bringing people into our Main Street gallery. And we got people who would not normally go to an art gallery coming in and just sort of mixed in different, <laughs> different types of artists in, in one space. Next month, our conversations in the arts will be on arts education. It will be moderated by Constance Sloggett Wolf, who is an artist and educator. She's a teacher at Northport and a terrific artist. I have a few of her pieces on my wall. Our panelists are Anu Anand, who's an arts administrator and educator, Nicole France, artist and educator, Diego Garcia, an artist and educator, and Marie St. Cyr, we'll call her teaching artist, just to break it up a bit. Uh, if you enjoy these conversations, remember they can be found on our Facebook pages. They're also available as podcasts via Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. And if you enjoy these, please, please make a donation to us. We would greatly appreciate it. Normally there would be a small charge to come into the gallery for this, but uh, as you know, a lot of not-for-profits are just desperate for cash right now. So I have done my... Uh, public television spiel on that. Thank you for joining us. Tonight, I'm very happy that um, Dr. Nichelle Rivers, uh, a good friend of the Arts Council, a multimedia artist and educator, has agreed to um, really not only moderate this, but she put this together. And she's been very good doing these for us in the past. I look forward to tonight. The panel includes Alicia Evans, who's an educator and artist, Lauren Gonzalez, who is an art teacher and artist, and Ebony Thompson, who was a visual artist. So you don't want to hear from me, take it away, Michelle. All right. So I'm going to um, I'm going to share my screen, make sure everyone can, can see that. And we're going to start this conversation that I am super excited about. I hope everyone is just as excited as I am. Um, so I wanted to open up um, with this particular quote just to kind of guide, sorry, guide our um, our conversation uh, this evening. Um, every day we must work to align um, our anti-racist values with our thoughts and our actions. The only cure for healing the deep wounds of racism and reclaiming our humanity is doing the work of everyday justice. It is no longer a question of if we should engage in this work, the question is how. And so um, and to, 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 frame, to frame our conversation, this is really about us having courageous conversations about uh, racism and anti-racism through the arts. And uh, I wanna just thank, um, you know, Mark and the Huntington Arts Council for, you know, allowing us this platform to uh, discuss such a critical topic. Um, you know, when we, when we think about um, decolonization, let me see why this isn't moving, apologize. When we think about uh, decolonization and the impact that decolonization has had on our, uh, on our nation as, and the world in and of itself. So decolonization, um, is when a, dom a dominant group um, steals the land, they take property, they take value, they take art, um, they take people, 
uh, which is a direction of, um, out of, the, of slavery. And so when you talk about decolonization, especially when you look at decolonization through the lens of, of, of arts education, right? Um, what does it mean to you uh, to decolonize the arts? And what suggestions do you have for art educators that could start them on this journey of reconciliation? Um, so I don't want to call on anyone. I don't know who want to go. Who wants to tackle that first? Um, who wants to tackle it first? Okay. Ebony, you want to go first? Okay, I'll go first. <laughs> okay. Um, thank you very much for having me. By the way, um, thank you very much again to the Hunters and um, Art Council, and of course to the great um, educators on the panel. Um, Ms. Lauren Gonzalez and Alicia Evans. Um, thank you guys for being here and thank you for allowing me to be a part of this. Um, my, I'm Ebony Thompson. Um, my full name actually is Ebonike Thompson, but they call me Ebony for short. I'm originally from Sierra Leone, West Africa. And um, I immigrated into the United States when I was 16 years old. So for me, um, the concept of decolonization, the arts, um, it's a very, very um, passionate um, concept for me because when we talk about colonial structures that have been in place for over hundreds and hundreds of years and how that has impacted Africans or West Africa, I can speak predominantly for myself, um, it has a very, very deep roots. And I was talking to um, Michelle about it. And I was wondering where do we start and how do we start? So decolonizing the arts for me starts with the whole um, education process. Um, it doesn't only start in North America, but I think we even had to go back to Africa and begin to decolonize the minds of some of the people that are there so that way we can begin to uproot some of the systemic issues and structures that have been in place. When we say we take, they've taken the arts from um, Africa, brought them into European or North American museums, those were not only arts, those were um, also spiritual artifacts mm -hmm. that has a um, very, very important role in the spirituality of the African people. And when we teach art in Africa, we basically teach it from, the, from a European perspective so some of these carvings, some of these artifacts, people in Africa do not even know who created them. So today you can look at the sculpture of David and you can tell the name of the artist that made it. You can look at an African mask, they will tell you what tribe um, the art came from, but they will never tell you, but they're not able to tell you the artist who actually carved it. So as art educators and people who teach art, I think when we begin to do that in America, in America and in, 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 North, in North America, when we begin to talk about decolonizing art, I think we should give the students the opportunity to research the art in their own culture. So if you have a class that has different cultural backgrounds, let those students research the art from where they came from and bring that into the classroom so the, so the um, pressure is not on the instructor 
to develop the curriculum, but have the students become a participant to um, creating that curriculum as we go by. So that's that's how that's how I would start for now. Um, Lauren, uh, you want to take take that next? Sure. Um, thank you so much for starting us off, Ebony. So to me, when we talk about decolonizing the arts, I'm really thinking about where, how we are learning about the arts is coming from. And so in institutions of education specifically, we're talking about the dominant culture, we're talking about white people, we're talking about a European lens at which we're looking at art, but even down to the techniques that we're learning how to use the materials. And that simply is not, if we're gonna quote Angela Davis here, right? We're talking about being radical, grabbing things by the roots. That's not the root of where all these artistic forms have come from, right? Like we talk, we're probably gonna talk, Alicia, about weaving and fiber artists and to talk about weaving without acknowledging the origins of the first flax weavings in Egypt in 5000 BC um, is, is doing a disservice to all of the students and um, the people who end up practicing the arts and don't really know the roots of where the art form, the practice, the materials are coming from. So for educators to start on that journey of reconciliation, I think that we need to hold ourselves accountable. And so Ebony, I love what you said about having students being able to participate in the curriculum. I think that's very, very important. I'm sure we're gonna talk about that more. Um, but I also think that it's required of us as the educators to be able to condemn acts of supremacy, acts of violence, um, and to express that in our artwork and to allow students the space and to create a safe space where these conversations can come up where we can unpack them, we can explore them in the artwork before it becomes a trend, right? Before it's in a headline. Um, and there's a lot of examples of this that we could talk about, but I wanna definitely pass it over to Alicia. <laughs> We're just getting started. Listen, I agree with, with both of you. And I think um, decolonizing art means, um, and especially for us uh, educators, is to be mindful, um, mindful on our end in terms of what the uh, curriculum should include, to be mindful that when we are uh, selecting um, or creating classes or curriculum, um, including that goes beyond just you know white America, mm -hmm. that we give students a chance to really examine that, to have those co deeper conversations. But this is a mindfulness that has to come every day. It's a mindfulness that doesn't just come in February. It is inclusive in the, the entire um, uh, semester from September straight through June. And when we have that mindfulness, you will see a difference. And that's the mindfulness of the entire staff that is there. All right. See, see this, is, this is why you know, I was so excited about this conversation. I just, I just see uh, so much coming um, out of what you know, the, the conversation we've started already. Um, I want to touch back on, um, you know, I think Ebony touched on, you know, holding 
uh, getting the students involved. Um, Lauren touched on holding people accountable and condemning certain acts. Uh, and Alicia, you talked about the mindfulness and going beyond just white America. I think that speaks volumes to uh, this conversation and, and different discussions that we have to have, especially as it relates to uh, the curriculum. Uh, mm -hmm. arts, you know, because it stirs so much creativity and imagination in our students, which also strengthens their critical thinking skills, right? So when you talk about, when you talk about that, I'm trying mm -hmm. to think here, I apologize. Um, especially when you, when you think about, um, you know, the, the whitewashing uh, of, of history, right? You talked about, uh, Lauren, seeing things through uh, this white European lens. Um, so there has been a lot of, a lot of controversy uh, at New York um, American Museum of History where Theodore Roosevelt's uh, statue, and you, you all have probably heard, heard about this before, uh, our 26th president. Uh, he's seen, as you can see in the image, um, charging forward on his horse. Uh, he's towering over two um, mostly nude figures. You see uh, one black person and one indigenous person. And, and so there, there's this, this, this group, this decolonization group that is saying, okay, hey, what are we doing about this? What are we doing about this misrepresentation of history and the whitewashing of history? So is it, is it enough uh, to just remove the statue? Um, what more needs to be done to eradicate the whitewashing of history, especially in museums and galleries across, uh, across the world? And I'm going to start with, um, with Alicia. What do you All right, so it's, it's really, you know, when I look at 2020, and how we were removing, we here in the United States were removing statues. Um, okay, that's a start. It was rather violent and I think some of it was illegal. You're not supposed to touch certain property. Okay, but it's a start. Um, and what was in, really interesting too is that if you take a look at recent history, if we look at um, uh, South Africa, looking at the University of, um, of Cape Town, they were also removing statues. As a matter of fact, they removed the um, Cecil John Rhodes statue. And uh, that, if you guys know the Rhodes Scholarship, they removed that statue because when they, they, they took a look at this, you know, statues there, statues there, this is all about white America and the um, atrocities that were caused by these figures and what these figures represent. I think it is real important that after we've taken it down, what are we replacing it with? Again, I'm coming back to that mindfulness. What are we replacing it with? What is the history that we uh, need to tell? And I think the history shouldn't just be black history. It should be history that is inclusive. What does that inclusive history looks like, look like that includes all people? people of color, indigenous people, Latino Americans, Asian Americans. That is what we as a community, the art community, societies, humanitarians, that is what we need to sit back and take a look at. And then even when we decide what's going to go there, if we um, do make a selection, and I, I speak in particular of, um, and some of you guys may have heard this story recently, there was an artist that was selected by the city, I believe it was San Francisco, and she was selected to create imagery um, honoring Maya Angelou. Mm. And the, the, what she created, the city decided that they didn't like it. Mm. Who are they to determine um, how this artist should interpret a particular image? You know, they wanted something that was more, they said more traditional, 
uh, and, and it had a touch of whitewashing, but it takes the community to jump in and have a say on that. And maybe it's commissions that we decide we're gonna to pull together, but we must uh, pull together committees that will do this. All right, um, Ebony, we're gonna hit it to you and then we're gonna uh, end up with, uh, with Lauren if you wanna address this, this question. Okay, right. Um, I, I'm in total agreement with um, Alicia. Alicia, mm -hmm. I didn't want to know if it's what um, pronouns you're going to say. We're family here. You know, I'm, I'm trying to be very cautious. Um, but I'm, I'm in total agreement with you because when you talk about the, um, the inclusiveness, we have to begin to tell the truth. Ah. We have to begin to tell the truth. So denounce the lie and tell the truth. So as artists, that is our call. So mm -hmm. as an individual who paint, I paint, I do not work, I, I, I hardly take commission work. I paint, I believe I'm a called artist, I'm called, I'm chosen. This is a vocation of vocare um, from the Latin word. It's a calling for me, and I'm called to speak and to use art as a vocabulary to communicate the atrocities of the people and the groups of people who have been put aside or who have been kept in the peripheral in art. So you talk about being inclusive, we have to talk about the Mexican art, we have to talk about the, the nomadic art, we have to talk about different um, ways people were able to communicate through art. And you, you, you cited the, the commission work that was rejected. That is not the first time it happened. That happens every single day. That happens in museums. That happens in galleries. Um, I have been told that my work is too politically vocal. And because of where they get their funding from, they would choose not to show my work because my work is, speaks too much about things that people in America do not want to have a conversation about. Mm. As, an, as an independent artist, I have been told that my work um, depicts too much pain. But I, as an artist, I am called to communicate the pain of my people to the public, so the public can see and empathize what the suffering is. Because the painting is what starts the conversation. When you ask the question, I'm able to go in detail and explain to you what the thought process was or what inspiration was. So decolonizing art starts with education and it starts with telling the truth. Mm. And it starts with us as a society, as a culture, willing to accept and hear the truth. So the truth can be spoken, the truth can be painted, the truth can be illustrated, the truth can be constructed, but if the people are not willing to hear the truth or to embrace the truth, then it's a bigger, there's, a bigger, there's a bigger challenge. Okay. So I think that mindfulness, 
that inclusiveness, it starts with us changing our minds, changing our minds of how we see and how we value those people who have been put to the side. Right. right. Um, I, when we change that, then we can begin to move forward. I'm sorry. Oh, that's okay. Thank, thank you. Um, thank you all for your for your comments thus far. Um, I want to touch a little bit on, um, you know, what what Alicia just talked about uh, when she said that the city uh, didn't like the the image that the, that they had commissioned this 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 artist to do, and I think that speaks volumes to uh, to power, privilege, and, and access, right? So when you think about arts um, through this um, this white lens of the dominant culture and who gets access and uh, who gets told that they're not worthy, right? Um, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about, you know, how, how that impacts uh, particularly artists, artists of color because um, they're not a part of the norm of what is considered uh, the norm. Uh, Lauren, I want you to touch on that before we get into a net, the, the next question. You I'm so glad that you called on me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have just so much to say. So. At the root, I'm just going to keep going back to the roots for this. Um, at the root of um, access and being able to go to a museum, see a statue, see a work of art, a lot of the times that has to do with where we are geographically, right? Where we are socioeconomically. To speak to that, we need to go back in history. And one thing that comes to mind and interesting that we're talking about Teddy Roosevelt, I'm going to go back to FDR and a concept known as redlining. Mm -hmm. And so if we learn about history through a more diverse lens, we will find out that redlining was created to push people of color into different neighborhoods in essentially forcing different socioeconomic brackets to occur, which eventually limited education, funding, access to the arts. We know these are the programs that get cut first. And so to come back to the statue and to come back to art education and art history and ask the questions like, who made this statue? What is the statue of? Why is it here? What was the message that this statue was sending? And so if we're taking this statue down, who is gonna be the artist that replaces it? What style is the new statue gonna be made in? What is the new statue going to look like? And who is it gonna represent? These are the important questions and that's the arc that I would want to go through and to see come to fruition to be representative of the people of color and the marginalized groups that have been so affected by the system that we're talking about. Absolutely. And I, you think, know, I think with this San Francisco thing too, um, what brought this up to modern day, and I think it is because of all the work that we did here, we as a, a society did here protesting the community came out and they went to the officials and they're like, this is not right. She won the opportunity to put up this artwork. And who are you to say that, that she doesn't represent my Angela the, the correct way? So it's like, it's, it's like 
we have to take a look at these pieces and say, okay, what is the function of the piece? And what is the, the, the fine artness of the piece and the environment that it's in? And I love that this woman, she actually won, or rather the community won. And I think that is so important for us when we are looking at art in, in all aspects, whether we are talking about the classroom, the museum, uh, uh, the, the, the sculpture in the street, it is the community coming together. And what are we saying collectively as a community? And this is what's new and I'm excited about what we're doing as a society. Yes, and Alicia, I love what you said about the fine artness of it. Like who is determining the fine artness of it? And that is the decolonization. Yes, 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 yes absolutely. Uh, if I may just jump in here for a second, I, I want to th thank you, Lauren. You know, sometimes I get a little confused by a lot of these things. You know, take the statue down. If you just take something down, you're almost doing what you're accusing the statue of doing. You know, you're, you're, you're shutting a voice out. But Lauren, you said it beautifully. It's like, you talk about it. If you start talking about, well, what's the problem here? What does this represent? Where do we want to go? I think there's a real value in that sort oh, of thing. Yes. You yes. know, you just don't say, you know, if you if if you start censoring, you're in big trouble. Right. And That's you know so that right. there's so much value in being able to talk about these things or, oh, I never saw it like that before. Or, yeah, that's a really valid point there. And and just to, you know, try to come maybe to some middle ground. Um, Mark, what I love, and, and I'm, a, I'm not a violent person. It <laughs> took the violence of knocking those statues down for we, America, to pull back and say, wow. And yes, we need to have conversations about these future statues. And what I also like about this is how many statues have we passed at the post office, you know, in a park, and we just never paused or thought about it. Yeah. So this is, again, waking us up. We had to take the violence, the little slap to wake up. And now we can have the conversations about what is existing and what is coming in the future. Yeah, yeah. I, I, those are those are such great points, and it, and it, and it's a perfect um, you know segue to talk about you know we 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 mentioned um, a community a, a few times, and really this is like um, Mark said is a, a call to the community. Um, yes. John Powell, um, John Powell uh, founded uh, an organization or an institute in um, California. It's called the Othering and Belonging Institute, right? And investigates um, the, the and challenges like social cleavages and the hierarchies and and power and privilege and access to researchers, right? And so as, a, as a, a part of this, I'm thinking about this idea of othering and belonging, especially as it relates to community and museums and, and what you were talking about, Lauren, with redlining and, and your socioeconomic status and um, you know your, where, where you live, the, the geography of where you live. So when researchers surveyed um, the collections of 18 major US museums, right? And the artist representative was 85% white, 87% male. When you look at the visitors, when you look at the visitors, 9% of the visitors at museums are people of color. And I'm talking about black and Hispanic people, right? So how or what do museums and galleries need to do to embrace the true meaning, the true meaning of community so that everyone um, feels that they belong? Well, they definitely need to include more um, uh, exhibitions and more African-American artists because some of the things that came up, they said that um, 
when we looked at, I think they did a research about two years ago, and they said, looking at all of the um, museums, only uh, 2% of all the acquisitions and gifts were of African-American artifacts or, or, or you know, um, paintings. Then they looked and they said that 7.6% um, of all of the exhibitions of the 30 prominent museums in, uh, in America, only 7% um, percent of the exhibitions were of African-American or featuring a black artist. So you look at it and it compares to the numbers that you gave there. So that says that it, the, these galleries, these museums need to take ownership of what's going on. They need to understand their audience and begin speaking and addressing the needs of their particular audience. And they really need to take a look at those exhibitions that have been just totally off the charts. So let's talk about um, Basquiat when he was at Guggenheim about two years ago. They did not even expect the tremendous success that they had. And one of the, his pieces, um, the artist pieces sold for $110 million. It was their highest, the most expensive piece of art in America and it had no black or white on it. But we must understand that. But um, the, the thing that I noticed about that exhibition, although it was a black artist, um, there weren't as many, the, the, attendee, the attendees of this particular um, um, show did not in include as many uh, African-Americans. There has to be a, 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 a concrete, devoted um, strategy to reach out to the community. We should have all been there. Everyone should have been there. But the day I was there and I spent five hours there, I wanna say that the audience was 95% white. Yeah. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Yeah, and it was a black audience. Yeah, that's the that's the pattern. Uh, Ebony, I don't know if you wanna you wanna chime in here before we go. Uh, go yeah, forward. um, that is what Alicia, what Alicia said is is so true, and I think when and also Lauren touched upon this um, when we talk about funding funding in schools. Mm -hmm. And the school system or the school districts needs to needs money or needs to manage the budget. The first programs that 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 chop to the head is the arts program, arts, music, and stuff like that. So the young people who are growing up, that passion, that passion to see art, visual art, and um, interpret it and make it meaningful and make it a part of their life or their everyday living is no longer present. So if you're talking to a 15, 16 year old kid in Brooklyn, Bed-Stuy, he's more in tune with rap music and the, 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 the musical part of art, but not the visual part because that is not a part of his, his or her life anymore. But when he turns on the radio, he goes on YouTube, there's an artist there rapping. Um, this word artist, they're creative with words, they're breaking words down, they're, um, they're intersecting words, they're mixing language and reconstructing or decolonizing modern day English. They, 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 they're creating, they're actually doing this decolonization in music um, because they're taking words that mean something in the original English context, breaking it down and changing the meaning and creating something totally new with it. 
but we don't see that with visual arts mm. because it is not an ever present thing in their life. So until we put visual arts and those art programs back in place, my wife is a my wife owns a daycare. So one of the things I, I push her to do is to include a creative segment of the day where the kids can just sit down and create mm -hmm. and let them begin to understand that their fingers, their, their hands can make something. And when that become a part of their life, and I think they will change that perception in museums and so on and so forth. So you gotta start with the schools. Oh, absolutely. I'm, and, and I think that's a, a perfect segue. I don't, I hope that you all can't, I, I'm looking at the chat and I, I have a question here. I think that um, um, to, just to interject, I think it's directly connected to what you were talking about Ebony with the, with the schools. Um, and, I, and I'm gonna throw this to, to Lauren. Do you feel change comes by being actively inclusive during lessons or actually pointing out that past history was exclusive and that needs to change? Hmm. Would you mind repeating it one more time so that I can make sure I answer the whole question? Do you feel change comes by being actively inclusive during lessons or actually pointing out that past history was exclusive and that needs to change? You all can see the chat on the screen, right? While I'm no. Okay. No. Um, that's a really great question. And the answer is obviously both to me. Mm -hmm. um, I think, and in response to what Alicia and Ebony shared as a teacher, um, one thing that I know is that there is a lack of funding in the arts in general. But I also know that there is a huge majority of art teachers that are uh, white women. And so I know that these teachers and myself were exposed to predominantly white and European artists in their education, right? So that's a lot of what is going to be taught and that's a lot of typical art curriculum. So in order to create a more inclusive curriculum for my students, I've had to educate myself I've had to bring Gordon Parks, El Anatsui, and Kehinde Wiley into my classroom. No one's telling me to do that, right? So Thank you. you're welcome. And I will continue to because they are incredible, incredible artists and their names deserve to be spoken in the classroom and their work deserves to be seen. And so of course, you have to make the classroom more inclusive. You have to do what Ebony said and make sure that students have a choice. But you also have to be able to do your own research and educate your students about who is out there that is an artist that looks like them and that is making work that's relevant to them. So that's step one for sure. Well, I'm curious. You're doing a great job. I'm glad you're doing this. I wish I was in your class. <laughs> <laughs> What happens, you know, when you're sitting in the teacher's cafeteria, well, in the old days, do you have those conversations with your fellow white teachers? Or is it, I mean, you're doing a great thing and you're going to just do your thing. And I know to be a, a teacher, it's a lot of work. And now to take this on, what happens? What do you have those conversations? Is it brought up? What, what are they saying? Do you mean with fellow art teachers or teachers? Right, fellow art teachers. Okay, so Nichelle has actually taken a class with me. Nichelle. Yes, Lauren, Lauren speaks <laughs> up. She speaks up, it doesn't matter where. 
Uh, yeah. That's why I wanted her as a part of this uh, this discussion. She's uh, she's an ally and she calls it like it is. Yeah, um, so I actually think to <laughs> Nichelle's point that it's important not only to be speaking to your peers, your other teachers, but also to the people that are in power and um, also educating the teachers. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, and that is the answer to the second part of the question about condemning things that are exclusive. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, we need to be able to model, especially as a white female teacher, I need to be able to model what it looks like to my students to just point out and say, no, we don't do that. We don't say that. This is why. Doesn't need to be upsetting. It's an educational experience for everybody. I've had it done to me and that's okay. And that's how we grow and learn, right? Yeah, that's so good. Absolutely. 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 Yeah, I, I think those, Very are, good. Yeah, those are great points. And, and Alicia, thank you for, um, for asking, that, uh, asking that question of, of Lauren. Um, I, want, I want us to touch a little bit, and, you know, because this, this kind of speaks to uh, this idea of um, of inclusivity also when you, especially as, a, as a art art educators and artists, uh, this idea of, um, of cultural uh, appropriation, right? So um, cultural appropriation is, is the unacknowledged or inappropriate adoption of, of, of customs, practices, ideas, uh, people, society, uh, their, their cultures, their religion, right? So the image that you're looking at now so back in uh, March of 2018, um, the artist on the left, she's, uh, she's deceased. Her name is uh, Emily Kame Ingwore. Uh, she's an Aboriginal artist. Um, the gentleman on the left is a British artist. His name is Damien Hurst. Uh, so he opened up, uh, I think he unveiled like 24 paintings uh, at a, a gallery in, um, in LA. And he came under huge scrutiny for not acknowledging right, for not acknowledging um, that he, you know, borrowed, if you will, and I think all, all artists borrow, uh, but because of the rich heritage of it, um, you know, there were some issues, you know, an Aboriginal artist told ABC that Hearst recreated the painting style without understanding the culture behind it. Uh, she went on to say that Hearst had a moral obligation to acknowledge the influence of Aboriginal art, and this is similar to what you were talking about, uh, Lauren, with, with uh, Alicia being a fiber artist. So should artists use images or styles that are not their own, especially when those images or styles are tied to a sacred history of another culture? Well, it definitely should be acknowledged. Yeah, okay, go ahead. If you're going to do it, it should definitely be acknowledged because there's a whole section in the Guggenheim Museum. Mm -hmm. While I'm going through it, I'm thinking the whole section was you know, from a certain portion of Africa. And it, it, it was, number one, it was not. And number two, the, the artists did not acknowledge where they got this from. That's when it's a definitely an insult. Mm -hmm. Definitely an insult. That's just my personal opinion. And I just get all huffy. <laughs> uh, Ebony or Lauren, you want to touch on this? I yeah. do want to touch on it, but I think I'll let Lauren go first. All right. <laughs> I, I mean, I just want to say this is one of those cases where art really imitates life, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we see it in art. I would love to make a wild guess what percentage of artwork in a museum has actually been 
appropriated from an artist of color. Mm -hmm. And I bet you the percent would be really, really high. And in life, we see the same thing, right? Music, hairstyles, clothing, you name it. It is being appropriated from people of color. We see it with like the Kardashians. I mean, you name it, it's out there. So it's something that is a great example of an area where we can kind of condemn, call out and name Mm -hmm. when we see it in order to bring the attention back to the origin, back to the creator, back to the culture that deserves the recognition, the representation. Yeah, that's that's that is so true. Uh, Ebony, I know you're waiting on this. <laughs> <laughs> As an artist, there's two schools of thoughts to this, right? Um, of course, if the style is derivative of a particular culture, we have to acknowledge it. We have to talk about it, and that's one of the things I think I liked about um, Picasso when he did his masks or his rendering of the masks, the oval, the, the, the structures, he was one of the very first artists that I know or that I've read actually acknowledged that some of those were from African masks. And um, he did it and he got a lot of um, respect for it. But the other part of it as well is um, as an artist, wow. The, I, my art is spiritual to me, right? And I always look at things from a spiritual perspective. So when I get an idea or I get inspired to create a piece in a particular style or, and I run downstairs 3 a.m. in the morning down to my basement and I begin to throw paint all over the place and work and then I would also search the internet or whatever a couple of months later and see somebody else did something very, very similar to what I did. So the way I see it is as an artist, inspiration comes. I'm not sure what everybody's, um, I'm not trying to be religious or but i think the the creator the divine creator sends out it's like um signals sends it out there and artists of like-minded or equivalence or or who are on the same wavelength would be able to catch those signals and create things very similar to each other not with the intentions of They, they, they never met Mm-hmm. never seen each other, live thousands of miles away and create pieces that when you put them together, you're like, whoa, they actually copied each other. So sometimes artists can create things not even realizing that somebody else before them have done something very similar and people who are looking at it can perceive it as being, as a stolen idea or appropriation, if you want to put it that way. So I'm a little bit careful when I come to that, but if it's intentional, if I create, if I think the artist is intentionally 
looking at somebody's work and saying, I like it and I want to do something very similar to this, of course you have to give notoriety to who did the work, whose style you copied in. But sometimes the artist doesn't know. You know, it's a, a situation like, you know, when I see any art that's dealing with um, African-American in their hair, and you know, there are famous photos of the, the, the mother who has the African-American child and they're doing their hair. That's a personal thing, uh, you know, community personal thing. Mm -hmm. And if I were to find out that somebody was not a person of color that did it and they didn't acknowledge, there's gonna be some problems. So for myself with my crochet, one of the pieces I wanted to do, and I had to stop and think about it. I wanted to create the, um, and help me out here because I need to do more of my cultural homework. I wanted to uh, crochet the Jewish, um, is it called the menorah, the, the uh, holiday, the yeah. menorah? Yes. Okay, so I wanted to do that. And I'm like, because I, I personally think it is quite beautiful. But then I said, okay, if I do it, you know, why am I doing it? You know, what type of uh, dialogue am I, am I to put there? Do I, I have any right to do it? You know, so I had to pull back and think of it. I have not done it. Um, I'll probably have more conversations, but I just look at it as being a beautiful and sacred piece that I would love to do, but I didn't want to step on any other culture's toes. And I, I think that's a that's an excellent point because you, you, you reflected and you asked yourself because uh, you know, it's like, do I want to do I want to do this, and do I have the right to do this? I think those are, are critical questions that that more artists um, and all these brand people and people that are making commercials and all these things they, they probably should should ask themselves. I think, and it connects also to um, who's at the table, um, who you're having conversations with as well, and the dynamics behind that, right? So when you connect this to um, education and what's happening in classrooms and this idea of, of appropriation, whether you agree with how things are appropriated or not um, in, a, in an art class, how does that, how does that play out? How does it move from appropriation versus appreciation? Um, Laura, you want to? Yes, sure. And I also, I really wanted to pose like a situation or a question, but I don't know if we have time. Um, you want to pose it now or? Yeah, because it's okay, really. Go, yeah, go ahead. go ahead. Well, just from an artist's perspective, one thing I was curious about, um, all of your take on this is when it comes to profiting off of the mm -hmm. art. Mm -hmm. Because, for example, this is not art, it's more literature, but um, Robin D'Angelo came under fire for white fragility after she started to profit right. tremendously off of the book. So still a great book, right? A useful tool. However, what she learned from black people to be able to create the book was not then compensated to black people in order to level out what she was earning from her work. So when you're talking about appropriation, I think it's really interesting to add to the conversation what's happening with the profits, the earnings off of what the person is making. Mm -hmm. If I want to try weaving in my home and I'm not going to maybe 
learn about all of the history and culture behind weaving if I'm, you know, just doing it for fun, is that different than if I decide I want to start selling Mm. my work and profiting off of that artwork. So I just felt like that might be an interesting Mm. thing to consider. Yeah, I think that's a that's a great uh, a, a great question. Who wants to who wants to mess with that? Anyone? <laughs> I think you made great points, especially um, you know about you know because everyone was you know after um, uh, the murder in uh, in Minnesota, you know everybody was buying this book and anti-racism this right. And so they were buying all of these books, right? And people were profiting off off of the sales of of, of these books and. And I'm assuming people will just figure, I'm, I'm going to read this and this is going to immediately make me anti-racist. And it just doesn't work like that, right? You have to do the work and you have to understand and, and unlearn a lot um, as it relates to this. So uh, does anyone want to touch on? Um, There's something I wanted to, because um, it's, um, I just don't know how to express it. I'm, I hope okay. I can. I hope I can do justice to it. So there's a pair of um, Uggs boots mm-hmm. that is out there. And at the bottom of, at the ankle of the boots, it's like, it's very furry. Mm-hmm. It has like furs, right? Mm-hmm. There's a certain um, African spirit. Mm that is represents when they do the dance of death. Mm. This spirit has been created. They, they, we use like masks and they cover with, um, with copper. And then at the bottom of the ankle, they have, we use what is called a fear. I don't know if that, if, if, I don't know the English word for it. It's like straws, like little palm leaves. Mm, I've and seen. he would tie it to the ankle. Yes, I've seen that. And he would dance, and as the drum beats, his feet would be moving. And people made memes of it. Your upstairs neighbor dancing on the floor, something like that. And but this representation of this African spirits, the fashion. If you look at how we are creating stuff today, they're all taken from those cultures. So I have no problem with them taking it, but then you have to educate and you have to know where it came from. You have to let your, your, your customer base know what, is represent, what, it, what it is represented and what is representative of. Mm-hmm. And when you begin to make profits out of it, I think some kind of compensation or something has to be given back to those people or those tribes. I'm not saying you hand everybody a check, but something has to be done to help or to go back to those cultures that we've ripped their um, riches from, put something back. Yeah. Just don't yeah. take and like example, museums. Museums have a lot of representations of African spirits. Those masks, they're not just masks. They're actually part of a shrine. 
and some of us who have watched the movie Jumanji. So when we talk about the efficacy of African religious practices, so the rain dance, people do the rain dance and then rain doesn't come. We say, oh, that was baloney. Because pieces of those spiritual elements are not in their rightful places, those spiritual process are meaningless. So when the colonizers went to Africa and they experienced the power within the African religion and how those powers were able to help the Africans stand against the colonizers, they began to take those artifacts, because they know those artifacts is what holds the power to what the Africans were using to fight them. Case in point, in Sierra Leone, there's a warrior called Baibure who had the ability to disappear. He fought against the British in Sierra Leone, you can look this up, and he actually defeated them when they tried to pass what they call the hot, the hot tax. He waged war against the British Red Coats Army and he defeated them. What gave him his power based on tradition was his walking stick. Mm. So when you have given us a whole you... education here. Yeah, and yeah. I think that needs to be brought into the schools because now there's a, you know, just by the little that you have said, it's an education in what those masks mean. It's not only yes. art, they mean something. They exactly. are associated with the so, the, so when they were taken away from the African people, they right. were not taken art away. That's just whitewashing. Right. What they were doing was breaking down a spiritual power structure. Yes. So make the Africans powerless. When you talk about the people in Haiti, voodoo is what made them unconquerable. But see, even never, if you're they were never able to capture yeah. the Haitians and make them slaves. Mm -hmm. In Sierra Leone, there's a tribe, in Sierra Leone and Liberia, there's a tribe called the Kru, K-R-U, or sometimes they spell it K-R-O. Those people were master navigators. Mm. And how did they learn to navigate the seas? When, when, black women, when black women were being transported from Sierra Leone on the slave ships, they would pray to their gods and they would chant. And on a bright sunny day, storms would break out. So the slave masters made a bridle for their tongue and put a blade inside. So if they tried to chant, they would cut their tongue. So they knew the power of the African spirituality. So when they were taking those, those masks, those masks are not just carvings like the ones I had that we just make. Those masks had spiritual meaning. Absolutely. And, I, and, and I, that's what was ripped away from the Africans. Yeah, and, and I'm sorry to cut you off, uh, Ebony, but because we could like, really go <laughs> yes. make uh, such great points. And I think it, it, it speaks volumes to, um, you know, the, the idea of 
um, the othering, the, the, the lack of belonging, the lack of inclusivity, and the whole uh, whitewashing of, uh, of, of the arts and, and, and of history in and of itself. Um, right. You know, a, a person made a comment. I just want to I just want to read this read this out loud. There are two comments. Uh, credit means nothing if you make your wealth off of the genius of others. All you have to do is acknowledge. Right. Money is elevating the thief. You need to stop to celebrate the culture and bring them in to these institutions. Uh, the second the second comment was for you, Alicia. It was it was from a person who says that they're Jewish. I don't <laughs> feel you would step on others' toes when you create and emulate images out of interest, respect, and even a feeling of wanting to connect. Uh, they said that they applaud, you know, you're wanting to do the, um, the memorial piece. And so I just wanted to- um, Thank you. Yeah, I, um, I, I, I know we, we're, it's almost eight o'clock, so I want us to, to, to keep going here um, with, with some of these conversations. Um, oh, I love this one. So, so Titus uh, Kafar is, um, he's an artist and um, he did this piece. Uh, <laughs> I don't know if you all have, have seen this, um, have seen this piece uh, before. Behind the Myth of uh, Benevolence is the title of the piece. And so the, the, the piece on the right is uh, uh, an image of, of Thomas Jefferson. Uh -huh. and, right. This, and Titus is, is, um, is, is, is known for, he, he's, a, he's an artist who self-taught. He, he started going to school um, and is doing really, really well now. He has TED Talks, all these other things. I'm sorry. I, I wanted to do an alarm to keep us on, on time. Um, and so the image um, behind there, as you can see, um, there's an implication, of course, that is Sally, Sally Hemings. Uh, but, but what he does is that he will, he will create a painting um, and he would take white paint and he would just whitewash it, right? He would just wipe through these, uh, these images. He recently said in an interview, if we are not honest about our past, similar to what uh, Ebony said earlier, if we are not honest about our past, then we cannot have a clear direction towards our future. So in what way do you, or would you use the arts as resistance or disruption? Well, I have done that. I have I have done that. I've used, and that's what I continue to do. Mm -hmm. um, when when um, I remembered the, the, the previous president won the election, I woke up that morning and I cried. I cried. Mm -hmm. And then um, then I said, okay, then what do I do now as an artist? then I had to begin to use my art as a resistance piece to continue to show that the struggle continues, to continue to show that black women who have always been at the footstool of America have always continued, have always been in a position to pick up the needle and thread and sew back the pieces of America and try to bring it back together. So all the pieces I created all since were all about the women's resistance movements, how African-American women have fought with the, there's one behind me, you can't really see it. I did it in abstract and realism style where um, the African-American woman is holding on to the flag and the flag is being pulled away from her 
and she's half naked. And I use nudity in my art as a metaphor for vulnerability. So I continue using those type of images in my work to stimulate thought and conversation. So when I put them up there, most people will see it and say, oh, look, there's a beautiful black woman there, nice breast, you really focused on the breast. Then I begin to explain to them what the partial nudity means, what the flag means, what the firm grip on the flag means. And then they begin to see it and we begin to dialogue about it. And people's mind have changed and some people have just hunkered down on their views, but as an artist, I continue. And that's why I'm not worried about selling my pieces. Okay. If I sell them, I sell them. But what I want my art to represent is that resistance yeah. from that's pain cool. to freedom. Yeah, that's, that's, that's critical. I mean, and I love your point about, you said uh, black women, uh, they, sold, they sold back together the pieces of America. Um, and, and that your images are a metaphor for, for vulnerability. Those are, those are excellent, um, excellent points and speaks, it speaks to the work, especially that piece behind you. Alicia, uh, do you want to, um, you know? Yeah, I think it's the responsibility of the artist, mm -hmm. um, if you are an artist, to pull the coattails of society, to pull mm -hmm. the coattails of humanity using their art. So whether it's to, you know, protest about a particular issue or it is to show um, a particular perspective about it. I think it is so very important. Right now in Brooklyn, if you um, take a walk through Brooklyn and look at some of the walls and what the artists are doing there. It's incredible. It's unbelievable. Yep. Um, you know, illegally, uh, they said <laughs> that a, a number of places are being sold, developers are tearing them down. I think the same thing happened in Harlem there's a, a church that's in like a two-story office building and one of the major brands came there. I'm not gonna name anybody's name and they wanted to just knock it down. But the, it was the, the visuals that are there are pulling the coattails of society. And when you have narrative, visual images to evoke emotions, capture universal cultural things, make people stop and think, that is uh, the artist's responsibility. And we as educators, it is our responsibility to open up our classrooms, to allow students to see that and to be able to feel that, to reflect on that. Art is so important to our society. All of us, it's a win-win situation. Uh, real quick, when I, I, my art deals with trees. I do a lot of trees. And my trees come in colors. They're red, yellow, blue, purple. And people say, well, why don't you just make regular green trees? The reason I'm making these trees in these weird colors is to make you stop and say, oh, that's not a green tree. Oh, but speaking of trees, don't we have some issues with climate change and, and the environment? That is my job. When the church, when the, um, the white guy burnt up the church in, 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 the, in the South and you know people were there praying, that whole bombing, and this is recent within the past six years, um, that bombing really hurt me. So the piece that I created, um, I used jute and jute shreds easily. So I did layering of jute shredding 
But on top of all of that, Jude, I put a tree atop on top of it, a white tree showing the, the, the innocentness. And if we come together, there can be peace. Yes, we're afraid at the edges, but we can come together. Yes, Amen. I love that. We're afraid at the edges, but we can come together. You, you, you mentioned open up our classrooms uh, to, to this, and, and, I, and I see this kind of uh, like a social justice um, yes. type movement, right? So, so Lauren, uh, talk, talk, talk to us a little bit about um, you know, what you're doing um, to, to, for, to use art as resistance or disruption, even in the classroom. Yeah, this is like my life's work here, folks. Um, I love it. <laughs> so uh, in addition to teaching art, I'm also a social and emotional learning chairperson for my district. Mm -hmm. So um, I've been trained in yoga and meditation and mindfulness and helping educators to embody that in order to bring it into classrooms. So when I think of art as resistance and disruption, what I'm really disrupting is your mind, your mm -hmm. ego. And so what I'm trying to teach my students is how to stop <laughs> and breathe and get in touch with your heart because from that place of receptivity and openness um, we get to vulnerability yeah, and yeah. that we know as artists is like where it all comes through that is where we are able to express that truth that we're trying to uncover so to me when we can engage in creative practices in mindfulness, in meditation, all those good things that help us to drop out of that limbic state, that fight or flight, yes. and get back into the you know frontal cortex where we have that higher order. Yes. When we start to do that and move in that direction, we're disrupting the pattern. We're disrupting the you know cycles that that we've been in for generations, right? And we're able to now get to this new place, this understanding, this middle ground this meeting of the mind so that's really how i think art um can be used as disruption is not so much in this like kind of like combative aggressive way it's actually a very like peaceful open loving way <laughs> is uh what what i try to have happen in my classroom love it absolutely wonderful thanks alicia so um I want I want to touch on, and I don't know if this is my next slide or not, because um, something else may be my next slide. Oh, but this is interesting. This is this is this is really interesting. So in 2017, uh, the Whitney uh, Biennial, right? Um, this artist on the left, Dana Schultz, uh, she created she created this image of uh, of Emmett Till, and there was this huge huge uproar. Um, people wanted to destroy. People felt like she shouldn't have done it. Um, and this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier about um, if, if you really have the right to do certain images, right, and, and, and should you and, and reflect on that. Um, so uh, I don't want us to spend a lot of time on this because I really want us to get onto cultural narratives before we uh, close out. But um, what are your thoughts on uh, the calling of the destruction of, of this particular um, body of work? And how do we move beyond um, having to make these types of choices? Anyone? I'll just say something. When you start destroying works of art, we're in big trouble. Yeah. Yes. We're yes. in big trouble. And it's, you know, we won't go into historical 
precedence is here. You know, you don't have to like it. You don't have to look at it. Mm -hmm. Not to respect it. You know, yeah. you don't have to go to exactly that. That really, you know, you start the, the fight may come out in me. This mm -hmm. you start destroying it just because it's against you or it offends you. If yeah. something offends you, I think it's it's your problem. You right. know, you have to examine why am I offended and let that come out. That that's just to me. Oh, if, if we're going to start destroying works of art, I've been right. working in the wrong industry all my life. Yes, it's similar to burning books, it's similar to yes. the, the, the council culture that we have right now. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I thought this was a, a, a really relevant to our conversation. Anyone else agree or disagree that, um, you know, about the destruction of, of, of art one way or the other? No, I wouldn't, I wouldn't destroy it. Like, like, like Mark said, um, if I don't like it, then I won't go. I won't talk about it. I won't respect it. I won't pay any attention to it. Just leave it where it is. And that's it. All right, then let me throw something out. <laughs> All of the statues mm -hmm. that were torn down, mm, what do we do with that? Yeah. Do we start a museum for those statues? Because it was still, they were still works of art. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think they have to be. Those pieces have to be the 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 original intent. I think it was Lauren that touched on that. The original intent and purpose of those art pieces should be taught truthfully. Those pieces were made and they were erected majestically in certain geographical locations yes. to achieve okay. a purpose. So the truth of that has to be told. We can quarantine them, we can put them wherever we want to do, but not destroy them, but the truth and the nature of the work, the nature of the people who commit, the, the truth about why the work was commissioned, why was it created, what, what were they trying to say back then, and how, how do we view it now? And how do we move forward in the future? The truth of that has to be taught. Yeah, okay. I think I think that goes back to the whole whitewashing of history, also, because these these uh, these statues are seen as these deities. They, mm -hmm. they did nothing wrong, and they did all these wonderful things. When that's that's uh, definitely not the case. So, right. You, you know your point about you know telling the, the truth behind it, right? And, right this idea of possibly quarantining them. I don't believe in uh, destroying uh, statues, those that were destroyed, my condolences. I don't believe in destroying them. You know, remo remo removing them, uh, you know, I think there's value in removing them, uh, but not not to a place where people can't still see them. Because I think it's, right. it goes back to right. saying, Ebony, about that truth, the, the, the truth behind, behind it, and the conversations that are evoked out of those, out, right. out of the truth. And our, I'm not a panelist, so I, I shouldn't be. No, it's fine. <laughs> it's a You're encouraged. <laughs> and our own depravity, so we can actually come to terms with right. our own depravity. So yeah. when you talk about the depraved, the depraved yeah. human nature, right? Mm -hmm. Then let's talk about the depravity of human beings. Yeah. And yeah. who is going to save us from that depravity? What we did, how we have the ability to look at another human being and call him or her a property. Yeah. Right. How yeah. we can 
step into a particular geographic location and take what is not rightfully ours forcefully. Yes. And then tell and then call them illegals. Right. Let's talk about the depravity of our human condition. Yes. Let's mm -hmm. use that as a tool to face the truth. Truth, no matter how it's crushed to the ground, will eventually rise up again. Right. Let's yeah. deal with truth. Absolutely. James, James Baldwin calls that moral monsters when people uh, ignore uh, the mm -hmm. that's, that's, that's happening around them. You know, that he, he just beautifully said it. You know, you, you are turning into the, the you, you call yourself these moral, I'm going to be the honor bearers of, of morality, but yes. instead turning into these moral monsters. monsters. Right. You have the, the, the obligation uh, to the truth and everyone has the obligation uh, to the truth, but, uh, but many people don't, don't see it like that. I think that's a perfect segue into um, the, the, the concept of, of, of cultural um, narratives, right? Cultural narratives tell a story. Right. Use the power of visual image to ignite imaginations, uh, evoke emotions. Um, you know, Ebony was just talking about his images and how they're a metaphor for vulnerability and the images of the women and how uh, people were concentrating on the breast and, and kind of missing uh, some of the other pieces of it mm -hmm. um, um, in the image. So how important is a cultural narrative to you? And as an artist, what is your story or what would you like your story to be? I think when you talk about cultural narratives, you're talking about um, creating visuals mm. that um, extend beyond time. And that if you're telling that story right, that same um, emotion, that same truth is going to, to, to come through. Um, we as artists, we, I'm sure we're all working on what our cultural, our, our narrative is to be. And I think that ties in with the artist's voice. Mm -hmm. And it takes time to develop. Um, and, you know, it's real important. It's real important. You know, when I think about cultural narratives, when you think about the walls of, um, of, um, of, uh, of the pyramids, mm. that's a cultural narrative that's extending through generations after generations. And Ebony, you might be able to jump in here on that. And you know, some of those stories are still being deciphered, but the emotions and the stories and the culture is still being continued. In, we're talking about thousands of generations later. So it's so very, very important. And it's important for us to, you know, uh, to sculpt it, you know, to take it like a molding clay. You yeah. know, what is it to be? What is it to look like? Yes, yes. Um, Lauren, I, I want you to jump in here. Uh, such a good question. When I think about cultural narratives, I'm thinking about how I'm teaching my classes and encouraging students to really explore and express their own identities. Mm -hmm. And by doing this exploration, what happens is we're creating through like it's like we're channeling our own visual language right and this becomes common for everybody this common mm -hmm. visual language and that to me is like the most humanizing thing yes. you can do and that's why art is so important and people don't know 
that and it's really hard to articulate and put into words but literally the process of humanization right yeah yeah so cultural narrative is where it's at (laughs) and I still as as an artist I'm really still developing there to be honest with you and I think that that how I how I weave that into into my classroom is still developing and it's it's really a lifelong process yeah I I, Mm -hmm. I think I think we're all um you know developing even 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 me as an artist I I still feel like I'm evolving um yes it's a continuous process absolutely Mm -hmm. yes it is it's definitely a continuous um a continuous process uh Ebony there's a comment um your painting in the background is breathtaking. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Uh, to share that. We we touched a little bit on Ebony. Did you want to comment on this before we uh, keep going? Uh, uh, the, the yeah, just I'll just take a couple of seconds there. Um talking about cultural narratives, my um my goal, my cultural narrative is as someone who as an as an African who's birthed in Africa lived in North America, trying to sort through life and its meaning, my cultural narrative as an artist is to bridge that gap. To bridge that gap and to denounce the lies that we have been told about each other. So the African lives in Africa. They tell him, your brothers and sisters in North America are lazy. Yeah, this, they don't want to work. They depend on social services. They want the governments to give them. They think the government owes them something. Then they tell the African-Americans here, your brothers in Africa are savages. They smell, they're useless. They've never created nothing. They're filled with corruption and so on and so forth. Then we migrate. The African comes to America, he meets the North American. He doesn't understand, the African doesn't understand the plight mm. and the struggles and the trauma of slavery that the African American has endured and the reason why he is behind the dominant society. Mm-hmm. So he thinks that they're just lazy, they've not been able to do things for themselves. Then the African-American is looking at African coming to America and not understanding them, not understanding the cultural practices, why we do certain things, why we wear certain things, and why sometimes we smell a certain way. How do we bridge that gap? So as an artist, I paint, and through my artist's talks, I try to bridge that gap. That's the, the, that's the narrative of my work. So the Africans can understand the plight mm. and the struggle of his African-American brothers here. And the Americans to be able to understand why poverty and with all the riches we have in Africa, the destabilization of our governments, our, 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 our um, coup d'etats that has been funded by different countries in Europe and other places, how that impacts us, our growth. So 
as an artist, that narrative to bridge the gap and to bring the two together to unify and to create something tangible and productive as a people. That's my artistic narrative. Yeah, that's 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 a powerful, a powerful narrative. And I, and, and I, I see that as your, you, you talk about your spirit, spirituality. I, I see that as your mission, right? That's, your, that's what, that is. That's my tribe. That's, yeah. And I, I want us, I'm gonna skip that, that, that question because um, we only we only have a few minutes left. Uh, the beauty of, of anti-racism is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism because none of us are. I mean, um, institutions across this nation bleed bleed racism. So um, is that you don't have to pretend to be free of racism to be anti-racist. Anti-racism is the commitment to fight racism wherever you find it, including and it's it's the only way forward. So when, when you when you talk about um, anti-racism and we're, we're having this wonderful conversation uh, about anti-racism and arts and inequality and gatekeepers and power and privilege, um, everyone is, is talking about it now. Everyone is talking about it more openly, which is a good thing. But what are we doing beyond that? How or what will you do as an artist to maintain the momentum that that we kind of have now, right? It's, there's a perception of, 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 a, of a slight momentum. So as an artist, how are you going to ma maintain the momentum um, of, of this fight for equality? Uh, Alicia? Uh, they, you put that burden on me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that uh, we as African-American artists, we need to um, participate in forums like this. We need to not just be um, isolated in our own containers that say, you know, you're, we're Black artists and all the Black artists stay in this section of, of society. Um, I think we need to get out. I consider myself an artist who happens to be Black or fiber artist that just happens to be Black. Um, I do not think we should be quiet. I do not think we should be sitting back just holding our crochet needles or the paintbrush. We need to be out there speaking and sharing and talking about what's going on. Mm -hmm. And um, but that's what I have to say. Okay, Lauren. Well, I always think these questions are interesting because people think it's a lot more complicated than it is. And I'm gonna offer two things that you can do okay. to continue with your anti-racist work. The first is to breathe which is uh -huh. what I was talking about before to engage in some type of self-care practice that allows you to open your heart and be receptive to hearing other people's stories, perspectives, opinions without reacting, right? And then the other thing is to eat. I think breaking bread together, getting together, having these connections, these conversations, it really is what makes the difference, especially as an art educator. I think back to stories that Ebony just told us that I would not have known if I didn't just get the chance to yes, sit on this panel. Cool. So thank you for having me. It was an honor. And to be mm -hmm. able to listen to Ebony's story, to Alicia's perspective, this is all you have to do to get started. From there, there's a lot of different steps that you can take to be even more active, but start to breathe, start to connect with people, and you'll see that you're well on your way in anti-racist work. All right, Ebony, 
It starts with me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I saying it, it starts with me. I begin to look at myself. I think it was um, GK, um, GK Chesterton. Um, I th um, somebody, somebody asked the question, what is wrong with this world? And he wrote the three line. <laughs> I am, I, I am what's wrong with the world and, and send it back. So it starts with me being able to confront and deal with my own fears, mm. with my own racist perspective. Yeah, I know we can say yes, as a black man, I cannot be racist because I don't have the power to say we have people live and create wealth and so on and so forth. But my own biases, my own fears, when I walk into ShopRite in um, South County and I see people looking at me like I'm not supposed to be there, my own feelings of insecurities, how am I feeling about them while they're looking at me? How do I allow that or those sentiments to affect me when I'm working and how I work and how I portray my art and how I speak to people and how I speak with people? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I think the whole process, again, it's, I, I, I mean, I love to eat. It's not a problem. I can eat <laughs> and I can breathe. That's fine. But looking at the mirror, looking at myself, my own depravity, confronting that, and then answering the questions of my own fears, then I begin to, then only then can I begin to help other people to mend themselves physician yeah. heal yourself yeah so i have to heal myself That's right. so true. and i and i appreciate that you know you mentioned you mentioned fear and and, and biases because you know we all come, come to the table with, with biases and a, a lot of people don't actually reflect on their fears and, and the fears especially as as um as a black man as a, as a black woman you know i walk around um you know and i experience this you know this whole concept of racialized trauma and it's a real thing. Just walking in my skin and looking how I look and all of these things that come with that, you know, they manifest in so many different ways. And so acknowledging that fear, looking in the mirror and saying what, what you need to do, uh, what you don't need to do and all of those things and how it impacts our creativity, how it impacts our imagination, how right. it impacts how we see ourselves as artists. Mm -hmm. All of those things impact us um, on, on a daily basis. And so um, the fight continues. Um, I was trying to see if we had any other questions. I know I want to, uh, Mark, I don't know if you had uh, any comments or questions before. Well, I was gonna say, we probably have to wrap it up. If you wanna like bring in the one comment and then I'll wrap it up. <laughs> uh, well, no one is really asking a question. So. Okay. Um, so I, I, I just want to I want I want to thank the Huntington Arts Council for um, this opportunity for for this really courageous uh, conversation. Um, you know, I, I think we've all learned a lot um, and, and this opportunity to just fellowship has has been wonderful. And I appreciate all of the panelists agreeing to, to have this conversation tonight and for Huntington Arts Council uh, allowed me the autonomy to kind of shape uh, to shape this. So I appreciate that.
You're very welcome. And thank you all for joining us tonight. You know, Lauren, you 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 said it, um, you you almost gave my wrap-up speech there. This really is kind of simple, you know. If you want to have inclusivity, you include people. Right. <laughs> That's right. kind of like tonight. You invite people to talk. No one has ever said no, I don't wanna, I don't wanna do one of your conversations. You right. know, people are, are tend to be pleased that they're asked to, to the table. And in you know, we've been doing these for a couple years now. We've never had to go more than, you know, one away. I know most of the people, or I know, Michelle, can you invite one person to fit, you know, to fit in? It's, it's just one step away and it just broadens the circle for us. Um, I, I can't thank you enough. This was fascinating. You're marvelous people. Um, and and th the wheels are going around here. Um, so thank you very much for doing this. Um, Next month, we are talking about arts education next month. I will um, throw that out there. Lauren, I think you'd enjoy it very much. Just tune in and, and watch it or, or catch, you know, we do record these, definitely. And uh, I, I want to talk, um, you know, to some of you individually. Michelle and I are making some plans. Alicia, you haven't been in my gallery in a while. So I know doing some shows. Uh, Ebony and Lauren, I've got some ideas for you already. So I hope you will, will be part of Huntington Arts Council moving forward. And this has been marvelous to our audience. Thank you for tuning in. Remember, you can watch this again. It, it'll be up on Facebook Live. Probably the minute we hit stop, it's going to be there. Don't forget, donate to Huntington Arts Council. Love this lady. <laughs> there, you go. there you go. Keep Mark employed. There we go. <laughs> so thank you all for joining us and good night from the Huntington Arts Council. Have a great good night. night. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you.